0: Buenas, buenas. Bienvenidos a otro episodio de Medical Spanish, el único podcast donde se puede aprender español para el hospital y también
1: para la calle. Nosotros somos los vatos médicos. Yo soy Esteban
0: y yo me llamo Adrián. There will be no slang this time for the intro because we're really just trying to use this time to have a serious conversation about structural racism and how disparities in the social determinants of health are not just some abstract thing that academics discuss. This really is real life. And these things play themselves out every single day. And especially with everything going on this past year, these have become even more glaringly apparent.
1: Yeah. And we should emphasize that these issues are nothing new, but whenever there is something like a global pandemic or an economic crisis or a natural disaster, whatever it is, if there's any kind of stress to the system, it's always the most vulnerable in our society that get the most disproportionately affected.
0: Yeah, exactly. So we know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself isn't racist. So then why do Latinos, African-Americans, Native Americans have a disproportionately higher chance of contracting COVID-19, having severe disease, and ultimately higher mortality rates than whites? Yeah, and the answer to this question is obviously you know complex and multifactorial,
1: but Let's just highlight some of the more obvious reasons, right? Like with COVID, minority populations, they make up a huge portion of the, quote, essential workers and in the healthcare workforce, especially, but these aren't necessarily the doctors and nurses that get the priority to wear the N95s and the Pappers, right? These are the ones who have the luxuries of working from home. They are more likely to take the bus or the subway, have jobs that require them to have intimate contact with others. Um, and more likely to depend on these hourly wages for their livelihood.
0: It's also because socioeconomic factors lead to them being less likely to have insurance and more likely to have barriers to receiving health care. When you think about core morbidity risk factors for COVID, which would be like hypertension, diabetes, obesity, you're much more likely to have these if you have less money for healthy foods or for exercise availability given gyms are closed, can't afford a Peloton. I can't afford a Peloton. So it's, it's really difficult to be able to do that kind of stuff, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, we could go on about this. But for now, we'll just have to leave a link to some articles in the show notes, which I thought do a really good job of mapping out how like the direct route that these inequities and social determinants of health and structural racism have led to minority groups being disproportionately affected during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully, this case here that we're going to go through can highlight some of those as well. Exacto. All right. So, for today's case, we're going to use the recent storm and power outages in Texas or Texas to combine a few topics together.
1: Yeah. And the main topic is going to be how to take a focused yet thorough HPI on a patient who presents with a first time seizure or convulsion or ataque, I guess are two different ways you can mm-hmm. say that in Spanish.
0: Yeah. And this is a really good topic because the history is by far and away the most important part of evaluating a post-ictal patient. And we're going to determine the need for further workup and management. Yeah, it really is a good one because it's not one of those chief complaints that
1: you come into the ED with it and you can just send them for a non-con CT and get the answer before you even go. You actually do have to go take a really detailed history Um, so it'll be a good one for us to work through in Spanish as well. So let's briefly discuss the framework that we'll use for working up seizures or seizure like activity, because it is relatively straightforward and intuitive. And then we'll get into the dialogue and cover how to ask some of these important questions in, in Espanol.
0: So seizures are actually very common. Eight to 10% of the population will have at least one over their lifetime, The primary goal in evaluating a patient's first seizure is to identify whether the seizure was provoked, aka a result of a treatable systemic process, or due to an intrinsic dysfunction in the central nervous system. Epilepsy is by far and away the most common type of underlying structural issue in the brain.
1: Right. So to start off, let's first define like what actually is a seizure because it it seems simple enough. Everyone thinks that if it looks like a seizure and it smells like a seizure, it is a seizure. But it can be kind of difficult once you really get into it. I always confuse myself when you're trying to categorize the different types of seizure. You know, there's focal, generalized, myotonic, tonic, clonic, absence. Like it really this opens yeah, this Pandora's yeah, box.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So up to date defines a seizure as a sudden change in behavior caused by Electrical Hypersynchronization of Neuronal Networks of the Cerebral Cortex.
1: (laughs) Awesome. That totally clears it up. Great. Exactly. This is classic up-to-date. Yeah. You end up reading a whole up-to-date page and are now more confused. So (laughs) let's just say for the purposes of this episode, we're going to define a seizure as basically a short circuit of the electrical activity in the brain, specifically the cerebral cortex that causes these changes in either consciousness, movement, or perception.
0: Yep. And most seizures can be categorized into two main boxes, either focal or generalized according to whether the onset of electrical activity involves a focal region of the brain, which causes localized symptoms. This is kind of where you have like the hand or leg twitching, but it's not typically associated with a complete loss of consciousness, or you can also have both sides of the brain simultaneously, where it's uh, full body symptoms and you have this alteration or loss of consciousness. So that's definitely more like that generalized seizure picture. The clinical manifestations vary based on the location in the brain and the amount of cortex that is involved. So focal seizures are further classified according to whether or not consciousness is altered during the event.
1: And we're laboring this point because when it comes to seizures, we need to be super careful that if we call something a seizure and we treat it like a seizure, that has a big impact on the workup and treatment. And there's a lot of diseases that can mimic a seizure, especially to a lay person. Um, So enough of the academics, though. Let's get into our approach for evaluating a seizure and how to go about this in Espanol.
0: Okay. So this is what goes through my head as I'm walking into the room. Number one, was this actually a true seizure?
1: Right. Because as we mentioned, there are many things that present similarly, like syncope, you know, just passing out migraines, strokes, encephalopathy. All of these things are not characterized by that kind of pathological electrical brain activity. Um, And many of these can be life-threatening conditions, amenazas de vida, that we don't want to misdiagnose as a seizure.
0: Shout out to the headache episode. Mm -hmm. So here's what we're going to ask. Was anyone there to witness the episode? And if so, what did it look like? This is going to help us categorize the seizure into our two main categories, focal or generalized.
1: And again, just to summarize, focal means just one focal part of the body. They're having a hand twitch or a leg twitch. Generalized means that they have a generalized loss of consciousness, and that represents kind of full brain cortex involvement. Yeah. So how do you ask in Spanish, did anyone witness this seizure?
0: Yeah. So, testigo directly is translated from witness. So, you could ask, alguien fue testigo de la convulsión.
1: Yeah. And that's a good opportunity to use our uh, haber alguien phrase, which is very useful in the medical situations. You know, mm-hmm. when we want to ask that general blanket statement, is there anyone? So, hay alguien, meaning, is there anyone? You said, alguien fue testigo de la convulsión, like anyone was a witness to the to the seizure. If you mm-hmm. wanted to be a little more complete, you could say, hay alguien que estuvo presente durante mm-hmm. la convulsion. Like, was there anyone that was, past tense, of star, present during the convulsion?
0: Yeah, yeah. So the, the past tense of haber, like you just alluded to, había alguien presente durante la convulsion. And I use the present tense of haber alguien a lot when asking about like a family history. Hay alguien en la familia que tiene un trastorno convulsivo. And um, trastorno, just for you guys know, is like a disorder.
1: Yeah, so I guess that's how you could say it. So trastorno convulsivo is how we would say like seizure disorder in Mm -hmm. the medical jargon way. So if you wanted to ask, like we will in this episode, is there anyone in the family who has a seizure disorder? You could say, hay alguien en la familia que tiene un trastorno
0: convulsivo. Yeah, exactly. Or you could just keep it simple and say, like, hay a familia que tiene convulsiones.
1: Yeah, that sometimes short and sweet is better. The yeah, more yeah. words and conjugations I start throwing in there, the more chance it is I'm, <laughs> I'm going to mess it up. So, yeah, yeah. so, okay, let's say that there was someone present. What's a good open-ended question to start uh, if we want to ask, can you describe what the seizure looked like?
0: Yeah, so when you're asking as the interviewer, you're going to want to ask, could you? So, ¿me puede describir cómo parecía la convulsión?
1: Yeah. So, ¿me puede describir, can you describe to me, cómo parecía la convulsión? How it appeared, this mm-hmm. seizure. And yep. depending on how they answer, we will almost certainly have some follow-up questions of that because there's many different aspects that we, again, want to further characterize of the seizure.
0: Yeah. So, getting a good description of the seizure will also help us distinguish between the different types like a myotonic, tonic-clonic, atonic, or absence. The devil is in the details here. So you want them to describe, describe, describe as best as they can.
1: Exactly. And in my head, I separate the HPI into three three categories, right? Before the seizure, during the seizure and after the seizure. So before the pre-seizure, was there anything going on that could have provoked this like infection, trauma, environmental exposures, drugs and alcohol, um, you know, things suspicious for tumors or masses, right? Headaches worse when you're lying down in bed or worse in the mornings. um, Any changes in vision and speech and coordination, things like that, that could give you insight into maybe what caused this seizure.
0: Yeah. And when discussing these high yield HPI questions, you know, asking about a history of epilepsy or seizure disorder is one of the things that can save you a ton of time. Because if so, that will take us down a very different line of questioning than if it were just a first time seizure with the most common cause of a first time seizure being from recent medication changes or maybe medication non-adherence. Maybe someone ran out, insurance changed, maybe they can't afford a copay. And maybe they're just feeling sick and they couldn't eat.
1: Yeah, like a lot of reasons why. And again, most of these influenced by some of the social determinants of health that we talked about. So what's an easy way that we can ask about preceding events that could potentially have caused a first time seizure in someone who has no history um, of seizure disorders?
0: Yeah, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask is really my favorite question to ask almost any patient is just, what do you think is going on? Mm -hmm. which it seems silly, but a lot of times it's really helpful to ask the patient what they think is going on.
1: Yeah, Yeah. totally. I I can't tell you how many times I come in there with my OPQRST mnemonics and then you go through everything and they're just kind of answering the questions. And then you try to delicately ask about sex and drugs and rock and roll. (laughs) And then, you know, if you would have just walked in and be like, why do you think they had a seizure? And they're like, oh, well, I, I drink Uh, a half gallon of vodka every day. And I haven't drank any in two days. Like that saves you so much trouble rather than doing all these things. So I I agree. The best thing is to come down and just ask them, what do you think is going on? You know, I'm here to help you. Let's figure it out. Pretty sure it was the great uh, William Osler who many people consider the the father of modern medicine. He always said, uh, listen to the patient. They are telling you the diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: so an easy way to ask is just that. So Usted puede pensar en algo que podría haber provocado la convulsión. So, the translation would be, puede pensar en algo. So,
1: can you think of anything que podría haber provocado that could have provoked? There's the subjunctive, podría um, la convulsión, the seizure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also good to ask if the seizure was preceded by an aura which is classic for many, many types of epilepsy. Some of the most common auras are going to be visual. So flashing lights. Um, Some people see little floaters in their vision. Mm. Other auras are going to be auditory voices, noises, olfactory Some people have random smells and um, sensations, also numbness, emotional feelings. Hmm. And what's super interesting
1: is that these auras like usually correspond to the region of the brain that the seizure activity is originating in, which... I always thought is fascinating. Like I was always skeptical of that homunculus diagram <laughs> that they show us in med school, where they yeah, have the yeah. whole sensory and motor cortex mapped out. But like it's pretty accurate. And like I remember seeing it on my neurosurgery rotation. We did a couple of the awake craniotomies for tumor resections, which are hands down like the coolest surgery I've ever seen. And so the patient will be awake and be like this. This one guy came in. I know this is story time. We're, yeah, yeah. One guy came in with difficulty with speech and word finding. And they scanned him and he had like a pretty big glioblastoma right over his like left um, temporal region, the language center. And so they took him in for an awake craniotomy the next day. And I remember they had me there like asking him questions as they're just going in and like sucking out like big parts of his brain. And then once he started like not being able to answer the questions and having trouble with speech, they know that like, okay, we can't take any more of this tumor brain because it's going to affect his language center. Um, And that's like how they know when to stop. So I, I always thought that was pretty fascinating.
0: Wow. That's, that's wild. Yeah. I know. Um, yeah. And kind of, you know, along those same lines, I, I, I'm always fascinated by some of these auras that people get. Another common one that I've seen is people get the feeling of like deja vu before a seizure mm-hmm. and deja vu, which is French for already seen is basically when you get the feeling that you have already been somewhere or experienced something when in reality, it's totally new. And now I'm kind of freaked out because I've been having a lot of deja vu lately. And I call uh, it
1: synchronicity. It's the, it's the universe uh, telling us where we're supposed to be. Yeah. But I, I saw there was one patient who had, they like the opposite of deja vu. It's like high may high may vu or something like never mm. seen. And it's this experience of being unfamiliar with a person or a situation that is actually very familiar, which like might even be more weird than um, thinking you had like been there, felt something before. Yeah,
0: totally. Could you imagine like waking up and then you're like, wait, where am I?
1: (laughs) That would not be fun. It'd be Groundhog Day every day.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right. We better get back to our HPI. (laughs) Oh man, we always do this. (laughs) Okay. So let's focus on questions about what happened during the seizure now. So during this is really like the meat and potatoes of the HPI. How did it start? Was it sudden onset, full body myoclonic contractions with a loss of consciousness, aka this is what you know you would describe as the grand mal seizure? Mm-hmm. Did it start out as maybe a focal partial seizure, and then kind of progress to this tonic clonic, or you know the the loss of consciousness associated with that?
1: Yeah. And that's kind of where the two buckets of focal and generalized can overlap because in epilepsy, there's this classic term called the Jacksonian March, which is like where the seizure starts out, um, just as tingling or twitching in one focal part of the body, like a finger or a big toe or the corner of the mouth. And then it slowly spreads out to like the whole hand or the whole leg or the whole face. And it just reflects this electrical activity that's starting in one part and just slowly spreading out into like the adjacent areas of the cortex.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We keep getting off on these tangents and, and all of this, you know, sciencey medical jargon that maybe people don't care about. So how do we ask, how did the seizure start?
1: Okay. So we've kind of gone over this one. Start is empezar. So como empezó la convulsión or el ataque, like how in the past tense, empezar, empezó. How did it start?
0: Mm-hmm. And what about how long did it last?
1: So this is another one that we've been over. So por cuanto tiempo duró la convulsión? So for how much time durar is to last. So how much time past tense of durar duró la convulsión? How much time did it last?
0: Yeah. And just kind of as a brief aside, you know, it's it's really hard for people to to give you an accurate estimation of how much time went on because mm-hmm. our perception of time gets really distorted during stressful situations like this. So take it with a grain of salt, but I really like to use it as kind of a ballpark time, right? So mm-hmm. two minutes ish or 30 ish seconds is how I like to do it. Keeping in mind that people tend to overestimate how long the seizure lasted and think of it like time seeming to slow down during these stressful events. And that that's kind of what can cause this this distortion of the time.
1: Mm-hmm. I know we I know we said we wouldn't but this is related like on my first shift in the ED <laughs> on my emergency Uh-oh. med rotate no this is like this is all why right. I don't judge people if I'm like how long you don't know how long the seizure lasted like this is my first shift we had a patient who came in with a history of epilepsy and he's just sitting in there and I'm there with the nurses we're checking him in and he just started seizing right in front of me and I just completely froze like I had no idea what to do standing there <laughs> shocked and then luckily the nurse was all over it and she was super nice about it she's like so so, do you want to roll him on his side while I grab the suction? And I was like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then she's <laughs> like, so do you want me to grab four milligrams of Advan while you get the IV access? And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> and by the time my attending came over, it felt like it had been like 10 minutes but it had really only been probably like 30 seconds and yeah and then came over and was like wow this situation is under control except for the med student still struggling to get the IV in and I was like you know if she only knew (laughs) how (laughs) froze I got so it is hard to estimate the time and it can be really stressful too so
0: yeah and shout out to our nurses out there who always save our asses totally all right so anyway, staying on topic other questions we want to ask you know some people like to use the mnemonic time which stands for tongue biting, incontinence, med changes, and alcohol.
1: Mm -hmm. So tongue biting is really good for distinguishing a seizure from some of those other mimickers um, like syncope or something else because so they say, the the evidence says that lateral tongue biting is nearly 100% specific for ruling in if it was a seizure. Sometimes people can pass out and have some twitching, but if you have tongue biting that is very specific for, okay, this was a real seizure.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so with that being said, Esteban, do you know how to ask about tongue biting in Spanish?
1: Oh, that is kind of a weird one. I mean, I know to bite is morder. So Mm -hmm. like, ¿te mordiste la lengua? Like, did you bite your tongue?
0: Yeah, yeah. Or keeping it formal, ¿usted se mordió la lengua?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. It reminds me of this story, Um, I won't go there, but we had, uh, there's a phrase, (laughs) there's a phrase that someone said to me, we were traveling through Mexico and one of the houses we were staying at had this like really nasty little tiny chihuahua dog and it just was all up in my face barking and growling at me and the son of the guy who we were staying with was like, hey, tranquilo Esteban, Uh, I think he said, pero ladrador, poco mordedor, so like (laughs) a, a dog that barks rarely bites or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. So basically, they're saying a barking dog seldom bites. And the version of the phrase I've heard is easier to say, pero que ladra no muerte. And that's, you know, a dog that barks doesn't bite, which honestly, I don't know how true that is. Um, if I've got a dog running at me barking, I still feel like they're going to bite.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, especially me being a scared gringo. I was not relieved by that.
0: But while we're off
1: topic, that reminds me, let's throw in a slang phrase here, because one of my favorite ones from a telenovela is like, it goes, uh, muerte el perro, se acaba la rabia. So like, (laughs) if you kill the dog, it will end the rabies, I guess. Muerte el perro, se acaba la rabia.
0: Yeah, yeah also where are you getting these novella phrases man you're full of them and we're not advocating for killing any dogs on the show let's i know now that i said it sounds worse i I always thought it was like
1: (laughs) muerte del perro like the death of the dog but i guess the phrase is muerto el perro so like we're actually killing the dog it's like if you want to kill the snake chop off the head yeah but you could say it and sound cool you know muerte el perro se cae la rabia
0: yeah totally
1: i don't think i can think of a medical situation when you would want to do that though
0: yeah yeah uh I mean, maybe a rabid dog bite. I there you know. go. That's actually uh, a very good. Yeah. That's a very good. Bite. <laughs> All right. So um, back to our time mnemonic. You know, T is tongue biting. I is incontinence. Mm. So losing control of the bladder or bowels is very common in seizures as well.
1: Yeah. So that would be incontinencia, like incontinence, and then either ordinaria or fecal. I guess that sounds pretty medical jargony.
0: Yeah, d- definitely, and you know, depending on the patient, if it's a younger person or someone you feel more comfortable being a little more casual with, you could just say something like, "Did you pee or poop your pants?" <laughs> orin- orinaste or te cagaste los pantalones. Defecar, I guess you could also say, but so like orinar is to pee,
1: cagar. I guess that's kind of like kid slang. Like cagar yeah. is like poop, but like yeah, yeah. they would know what you're saying if you said that.
0: Yeah, and so actually, on my last rotation where I was at. One of my attendings, super fluent in Spanish, mm-hmm. he would just say, he would just say, el pupu. So, he, <laughs> and, and, but el like pupu. every, yeah, but everybody knew what he was saying. Mm-hmm. So, como so, esta el pupu, tiene diarrea o esta tapado, which is, you know, constipation. Um. And everyone seemed to answer until... And I it think that cool. shows like being really fluent
1: versus like knowing the translation, because like I can look up all these things in the medical Spanish textbooks, but I'll say something and they'll still look at me like, what are you talking about? When in reality, I could just say like poo-poo and they would know exactly yeah. what I meant, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. Um, so
1: tongue biting, incontinence.
0: Yeah. And so what would be maybe the more formal, if we were not going to say poo-poo, <laughs> if we're not going to say te cagas a little pantalones, what what do you think we could do instead
1: So in English, I would say, did you lose control of your bowels or bladder? And so, Mm -hmm. usted perdió, like to lose, usted perdió control de orinar or defecar? Like, did you lose control of going pee or or poop?
0: Yeah, and and I think that one's really good too. Um, I'm for sure still going to always say (laughs) poopoo. Perdiste el control de poopoo. (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay. in los pantalones. yeah exactly
0: <laughs> all right okay back back on on track again so we've got tongue biting is t i is incontinence m is med changes and e is etoh which we use for you know alcohol mm-hmm.
1: and these are muy muy importante like the reality is that in my experience, like 90% of the seizures that I've seen are usually related to either med changes or inability to adhere to the medications um, and alcohol withdrawal seizures, because that's just the reality of, you know, the world that we live in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you're looking through that history on, you know, your your medical record and the person has a diagnosis of seizure disorder mm-hmm. or epilepsy, the first line of questioning is going to be about recent med changes or non-adherence, right? Anything that might be happening. And so
1: that's preventing them from being able to take it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when we say non-adherence, we just use that because it's, I guess some people, depending on, on where you're probably training or where you're at, definitely use non-compliance, mm-hmm. but it, non-adherence definitely just seems a lot nicer. Um, it's less judgy. It's less paternalistic. I don't necessarily feel like my patients need to be compliant to everything I say, but I really like for them to adhere to the recommendations. And the way I look at it is like the inability to adhere to those medical recommendations.
1: Totally. We're not like the drill sergeant who's like, you must comply with my orders. You know, it's, we are here to make recommendations. And so like, you can adhere to them or not adhere to them. There's definitely a stigma that gets put on people. When I've heard that, you know, when someone gets labeled as Mm non-compliant, we as healthcare professionals probably need to be a little more professional about stuff like that, because there usually is this myriad of socioeconomic factors at work. And sometimes I'll see notes that just say patient has a history of epilepsy now presenting with breakthrough seizures, secondary to noncompliance. And like, right, that's it. As if it ends at the noncompliance and there's nothing, it's all the patient's fault. There's nothing we can do about it, but that's not the case at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think medicine is slowly changing to better equip physicians and other members of healthcare teams. To be able to address these social aspects of care Um, like, oh, they are non-adherent because their new anti-epileptic isn't covered by their insurance or it's got a huge copay or the patient is homeless, doesn't have access to refills or other people at the shelter are stealing their meds, which is super common Mm -hmm. and whatever, whatever it may be. You just have to ask about the whys, right? You really got to ask the whys, you know, why are they having trouble consistently taking their medications and then see if there's anything that we can do to help them along with that, whether it be prescription coupons or good RX, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think the the role of a physician or provider in general is changing to be more um, aware of those other factors. Like, you know, our job isn't to just write the prescription. It's to understand how can we best get this person in a place where they'll be able to consistently take their meds and not have these seizures. And so, totally. um, so how would we ask about med changes in Spanish? Like I know cambiar is the verb to change. Um, like cambios is the noun version. So would you just say, like, algunos cambios en, en su medicamento recientemente? Like, are
0: there any changes in your medication recently? I mean, that's definitely, like, the bullet point question, right? <laughs> yeah. But you could be a little more complete and just say, ha tenido, you know, have you had or ha habido, have there been algún cambio en su regimen de medicamento? So, you know, any changes to your uh, medication regimen?
1: Yeah, that's a much better way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, And and in this category, as we're going through the HPI, it's always good to consider that there's a ton of medications for other medical problems that can cause seizures too. So before we go on to the next questions about drugs and alcohol and start assuming that it's these other things and judging people, I always try to keep in mind, sometimes we do a lot of things and we prescribe a lot of medications that can cause seizures, whether it's other meds that interact or there's a super therapeutic level of some meds. So I always just kind of take a pause and say, okay, not just their medications, but are there any other medications in their med list that could be causing this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just take a look at isn't it uh, bupropion, which lowers that seizure threshold. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's stuff that we as you know, physicians kind of cause this, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way. Yeah, Um, first do no harm, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then the next one, ETOH, and alcohol withdrawal is the most common cause of non-epileptic seizures um i don't know if that's true i i
1: (laughs) I just wrote that in the script it feels true to me but full disclosure did not fact check that
0: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it it really does because it seems like almost every patient has has like this common provoking factor is like oh well i typically drink you know half a fifth every every day i ran out i lost my job haven't had alcohol since the day before yesterday. And it's really important to kind of ask that history question because DTs can be life-threatening.
1: Yeah. And so maybe that's not a, the fact is not true. I think it's probably part of a sample bias, like, right. So these people who, who drink alcohol, like their whole lives, every time that they stop, they're at risk of having a seizure. And so that's how the same patient can end up, you know, in the hospital, multiple admissions. And a lot of these people do um, and especially if you go into DTs, so let's, I, I won't say that that's a fact, but like a very common cause that we see in the hospital. Yeah, um, absolutely. And then we've covered, we've covered the asking about alcohol use in previous episodes, check out the garganta. but essentially you're just asking one, do you drink alcohol? Usted mm-hmm. toma alcohol? And if so, how much, or how many per day, you know, quantas cervezas or bebidos por dia.
0: Yeah, and if we're worried about alcohol withdrawal, it's super important to ask when was your last drink, um, because that timeline is important. Like we were talking about earlier, the highest risk of DTS occurring around forty-eight to seventy-two hours after the last drink. Mm -hmm. So, how we would ask that is ¿Cuándo fue su última cerveza? Or ¿Cuándo fue su última trago? Or bebido? Or ¿Cuándo? ¿Cuándo fue la última vez que tomaste alcohol? That's that's another one that's just like, mm. you know, not beer, not um, a, a thraggle, right? Like, when was the last time you had alcohol? Are you asking me because I had a Bloody at about 11 a.m. this morning because I was hungover? <laughs> oh, man, don't don't make me use cage questions on you. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: I don't feel like I need to cut down. No, I'm not annoying people, at least any more than I do when I'm sober. <laughs> no, I don't feel guilty at all. And no, the Bloody Mary was not an eye opener. Actually, I'm Actually, not, yeah. I, I caged it. it yeah, I just yeah. caged myself. Yep, yep, you caged it.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So we're going to save your en- intervention for another episode. We'll definitely go go through the cage in Spanish for Esteban. We're going to have to do something for him. Do some but- motivational interviewing
1: <laughs> yeah. in Spanish.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then just to finish out that time mnemonic. So E. You know, ETOH, alcohol, but it can also stand for environmental exposures. And there are so many of these. It can be anything from lack of sleep, stress, heat, um, you know, flashing lights or TV shows, chemicals in the home, noxious fumes. Spoiler alert.
1: <laughs> right. And we've, we've covered most of the important questions here when we're taking an HPI on a patient who presents with a seizure. So was there a witness? Were there any auras or precipitating factors before mm-hmm. have them describe, describe, describe what the seizure activity looked like. Yeah. And then asking about the time mnemonic tongue biting, incontinence, meds, alcohol, environmental factors. Um, and then the last crucial question is what was the patient like immediately after the seizure?
0: Yeah. And, and as you alluded to, so super important because the presence or absence of a postictal state, aka confusion or altered level of consciousness after the seizure ends is really important for distinguishing seizures from syncope. So syncope can also have some some weird twitching spasms. And like we already mentioned, a true seizure is electrical misfiring of neurons in the brain. So it will cause this confused postictal state.
1: Yeah. Versus syncope where the patient more or less returns almost immediately after to their baseline, right? So maybe they're confused about what happened. They're like, why am I laying on the floor and people staring at me, but like not truly altered. So it's crucial to identify this. Did the patient return to their baseline self or level of consciousness and Also to clarify, if it was just one episode of seizing or if the seizure activity stopped and then restarted, especially in cases where there's like multiple episodes, if the patient doesn't return to their normal baseline before the next seizure starts, they actually consider that like a continuation of the seizure. And so you're more likely to meet the criteria for status epilepticus or um, like just an ongoing seizure. So in Spanish, how would we ask the, the witness or the testigo if the patient returned to normal after the seizure?
0: Yeah, so since our patient in the dialogue is going to be a boy, let's say we're asking about a girl who just had a seizure. So, um, you know, y ella se volvió a su normal después de la convulsión. Okay. So, ella did
1: she say volvió, past tense of volver, did she return mm-hmm. a su normal to her normal después de la convulsión after the seizure. Yeah. Um, so perfect. All right that's enough medicine. Let's, uh, let's get into our dialogue. And then after we break it down, maybe we can touch on some of the do's and don'ts of what to do when a person is seizing.
0: Yeah. And a uh, spoiler alert, don't stick shit in their mouths. <laughs> don't try to put a, a tongue blade in there. Don't try to like, put don't your put their wallet in, in there. there. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> gonna choke on their card.
0: Yeah. Don't put any foreign bodies in the oral pharynx or in their mouths. <laughs> like, Just don't
1: (laughs) do, do have an experienced nurse next to you do turn them on their side. So they don't choke on their tongue or or their vomit. Uh, You can remove all sharp objects or things that they could potentially like bang into or hit the, hit themselves on things like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if you're in the hospital, don't just stand there confused like you did, right? Try to get the IV access if you have the stuff available and, you know, obviously start the benzos. Yep.
1: Okay. So when we return, we will get into the dialogue.